Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. Each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I talk to Oliver Schutt, co-founder of the Costa Rica-based architectural firm A01. We talk about their recently completed project, No Footprint House, which is located in Ojo Chal in Costa Rica. The house has received international recognition and numerous awards, including recently being publicly voted as the best rural house at this year's Dazeen Awards. Next year, A01 will be presenting the project at the Venice Biennale. It is a prefabricated house created as a zero-carbon home prototype. The form is very distinctive and sculptural, like a minimalist pavilion but with slanted sides and opening louvered wall panels. The interview was great fun, finding out about designing for a tropical climate and how to create a home with a minimal carbon footprint that can be prefabricated and transported as flat pack on the back of a truck. You can see pictures and drawings of No Footprint House on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Great, George. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought I'd start with um, just finding out a bit about you. If um, just if you could sort of tell the listener a bit about yourself and your on your company and what you do for anybody that doesn't know your work. Yeah, great. I mean, we started Azio One in two thousand five, and we call it an interdisciplinary network organization. So it was a bit of a reaction also to the places where we worked before. I started the office with my partner, Mariah. She's a cultural anthropologist economist. I'm an architect urbanist. Uh, she was working for the United Nations. I was working for OMA. And uh, we started discussing this kind of multiple perspectives on issues related to development in a broader sense. So in the end, we said, hey, we should get together about this and work together. So we took some time off on our respective works and basically helped building a village in Nicaragua. And uh, based on that experience where we explored certain kind of uh, participatory work approaches, we uh, said, that's good. Let's do that. Let's stick Mm -hmm. to that. And um, with that experience in mind, we started a company as a consulting firm, design firm, but we work in different topics of urban and rural development. And then we also had this desire to create social value or social capital with our work. So we also started a foundation in order to work as a nonprofit entity at the same time, because we saw that a lot of the topics that we wanted to tackle uh, we could not cover those areas uh, by working as commercial consultants or designers. So it is this kind of duality between A0, uh, between a company and a foundation that defines A01. And you probably see that we gave these entities very anonymous names because for us, uh, we really want to put the users or the people that we work with in the foreground of our projects. So in a way, we set deliberately let's go away from ego this is not about me as an architect or maria as an anthropologist uh but we gave it very anonymous names and uh that is what we've been working with ever since in a lot of different areas and i think that is for us what really keeps this uh interesting and exciting 
to uh, look at sustainable development in urban and rural areas from a lot of different angles. Well, what's really nice today is we're going to be talking about one of your latest um, projects, No Footprint House, and it's quite a small project, but what it's trying to achieve and what it's exploring is a, is is clearly a much bigger topic and it's going to be interesting i think in this interview to explore some of those themes and what you're doing with a01 but also just explore what a fantastic um design it is and 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 understand why it's getting so much recognition at the moment um how would you describe the project if you're going to describe it briefly to somebody that didn't know it well let's say the idea was to have a simple house um there's a lot of complexity here with housing in central america especially in costa rica where we are based and um, on the one hand side, we said, let's try to make uh, an environmentally more friendly house. Um, there's a lot of complications here when the architect has uh, supervision on long distance, uh, because, you know, there's a lot of difference in quality if you go away from the urban areas. And that is very hard to control for the designers and it's very hard to finance for the client because you know it means moving around a lot it moving back and forth a lot uh not only me as an architect but obviously the whole workforce and because of that we looked into prefabrication and uh that is like for me the essence of the project on the one hand side to try to find simple and applicable solutions towards the idea of sustainable housing and see how we can use the idea of prefabrication and industrialization to optimize that product. Well, how, how did this project start then? I'm interested in, is it is it a project that somebody needed a house and you designed it for them and it's now become a bigger project? Or were you looking for a vehicle to explore these themes and grow it on a bigger scale? Well, a bit of both. And I mean, that probably goes back then to this concept of AZO1 that like on the one hand side, we look into needs and obviously there's a need here for sustainable housing. And on the other hand side, we were also very interested in the overall performance of the construction industry in terms of a footprint environment, or footprint if you want to call it like that, on a bigger level, on a bigger scope. And we've been working uh, on issues also related carbon emissions, relating uh, the sustainable environmental performance of constructions. We've been working on that on different scales in terms of master planning, in terms of uh, the performance even of a city or a region. And for us, then it became very logical to also look into the scale of one building or what we're working on now, also multifamily housing. And that for us created this idea of working on what has now become the No Footprint House on a conceptual level, which we were driving through the foundation. And then at some point, obviously, there's also people here who want to have a house. And we heard about this uh, person or this couple much rather being interested to have a house in that area where we finally built the prototype of the no footprint house. And there's a great video of, of the house. And is, is that the is that the couple that's in the video? Are they the occupants? Are they your clients? Yes, they are. Um, yeah. They felt a bit awkward at the beginning about getting filmed in their private <laughs> domain. But then again, they were very proud, I would say, of what we achieved together. And uh, finally, they were okay. And I think they did quite well. Yes. Um, well, it is a very good video, so congratulate them on their performance. Um, <laughs> I will. The, I will pass that on. <laughs> the uh, the name No Footprint House. Um, 
it's in one, in many respects it's quite clear what the, the the name is saying exactly what the project does but what does what does the footprint mean to you because there's a literal sense of the physical footprint but um there's also in terms of embodied energy and other things what's what's the essence of the the footprint um in the name for you yeah no that is a very good question because actually the dual uh, or multiple let's say answers when we discussed uh, when we started discussing this whole idea of this uh, industrialized, uh, better performing house, then there was an idea to say, well, let's also see if we can like put it into environmentally more sensitive areas. Once again, like in Costa Rica, there's a big issue about environmental uh, contamination through construction. So the starting point was, let's see if we can prefabricate a house that we bring to the site it's buildable, but also completely unbuildable later on and removable. That like for really environmentally very sensitive areas, like you have here, for example, on the edges of uh, national parks where you're still allowed to construct. But even if it's allowed, I would say we have to be very careful with what we put there. So that was one way, let's say, of discussing footprint that like the building could be taken away and literally leaves no footprint behind. But as this is an ongoing project, uh, we started with a house, also according to the wishes of that first client, that would be permanent. Because mm -hmm. they have a site where you actually have a grid of services nearby. We could access that grid. And uh, it is in the wider context of a settlement of a village. And he said, well, I don't need to take the building away at no point ever. I have not planned this. And uh, let's thus not make it fully removable, because obviously that also um, implies more uh, design and research. How do you make all the connections? We found out that it also implies more cost, because if you make all connections mechanical, you know, you have all kinds of bolts and uh, uh, extra connections that um, need to be financed. And our idea was also to make a very affordable building. Mm -hmm. So let's say that was this one area of discussing footprint. Then the other area that was also and still is very important for us is the environmental footprint with a focus on carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. um, we worked on, uh, for example, a roadmap towards carbon neutrality in Costa Rica from 2010 to 21. That was like a first draft to discuss carbon neutrality on a national scale. Uh, that draft was later continued by the national government. It was adopted uh, finally to become the national plan for decarbonization 2018 to 2050. And that was ratified last year. But let's say through this kind of work, we were also very much getting into this whole issue of uh, environmental performance with a focus on carbon footprint. And obviously that became the other level of discussing footprint in the context of the no footprint house mm -hmm. and for example last year we made a life cycle assessment of the building as built and um we presented that at the preliminary uh how you call that in english the pre-cop we call it over here which is the conference of the parties of the united nations to discuss mm -hmm. climate change and that was the pre-cop 25 which took place here in costa rica and later we also went to spain to madrid where the final conference took place which is called the cop that was the cop 25 and there we discussed this whole issue of how you can reach uh zero footprint zero carbon footprint within residential construction 
And obviously, we used uh, the No Footprint House as the example, and we showed how that can basically phase down to a zero carbon footprint. And obviously, there's clear advantages for the, the zero carbon. It's just less impact on resources, less impact on emissions. In terms of the demountability part, what's the advantage of having a, a property or a building that you're able to take down and, and take away? Well, maybe that came also a little bit about this kind of like romantic idea of uh, a mobile home somehow. I mean, we've mm-hmm been mobile all of our lives. Uh, I was very fascinated personally when I came here really about the adaptability of things. I mean, I mentioned that briefly before, the first thing we did was to build a village in Nicaragua and that was based on the concept of progressive homes and productive homes. That means on the one hand side that the buildings can continuously, you know, you develop a building system, you add a space, you take away a space. You convert a space and you include, that was in a rural area, you, could, you include rural types of functions. Thus, they call it a productive house, a workshop, uh, area for chicken, for pigs, all that kind of stuff. And I mean, the impermanence of things here in the global south, if you want to call it like that, is really, really something that fascinated me. So I think always a little bit I've been looking for this impermanence in the kind of architecture that I've been designing as an architect. Mm -hmm. And I was very fascinated by this kind of like idea of transition. Because, I mean, I've also worked on bigger projects with other firms where maybe by the time the building was implemented, it was already outdated. Because simply we were looking at such long planning spans. And to keep something flexible, to keep something mobile, maybe removable, maybe add a room here or there, create this kind of flexible framework uh, that's been with me ever since. Mm-hmm. There's um, again, I'm referring to one of the other videos of the project, but there's this fantastic video of that shows the journey of the house. It fits the whole house fits onto the back of one truck. And um, and I was I was watching it actually um, today with my five year old daughter and showing her. This is there's a house on the back of this truck and it's traveling through what I imagine must be the whole of Costa Rica and just explaining, you know, asking what it is and explaining to a child, well, it's like it's like a Lego set. It's it all sits on the on the back and then it's all got these components. Um, so I'm really looking forward to sort of chatting about that a bit more as a, a bit later on in the interview about how that demountability then impacts the design because it's a very structured um, and gridded design. Um, but I may, maybe before we sort of talk a little bit about, you know, what the house looks like and uh, and the design of it, um, the, the house is in Costa Rica. And so in terms of the location, could you maybe describe what the location is like? Is it uh, in Costa Rica? Is it quite a remote location? It's remote, but I mean, it's still quite an accessible country. Um, let's say we are located here in what we call the Central Valley, which is kind of located on a higher plateau, uh, literally in a very central location of Costa Rica. And there's a kind of like, you know, mountainous slope. So let's say this uh, Central Valley ranges from approximately 800 to 2,200, 2,300 meters. Um, that is interesting to say because with height difference, with geographical difference, here comes climatic difference. I don't know if you heard about it, but Costa Rica is really famous for its microclimates. Mm-hmm. The country is about 0.03%, if I remember that right, of the land surface, but it has about 6% of the world's biodiversity. 
Mm-hmm. So that is created also through microclimates. And you can imagine, I mean, if you go just within the Central Valley from 800 to 2,200 or 300 meters, there's already huge difference in terms of flora and fauna. And if you move through the country as a whole, it's just like beautiful to see how nature changes. And uh, this prototype of the No Footprint House, we were placed, we were prefabricating it here in the Central Valley. And then we drove it on that truck that you mentioned, a 40-feet trailer, down the Interamericana to the South Pacific. And that is like on the edge towards the Panamanian border. And uh, it's a very different climate from here. It's a tropical, uh, humid coastal forest. And that means it's very humid all year round. It has some colder periods, quote unquote colder, where the temperatures may sag to, I don't know, 18 degrees or something like that. But it's a very stable climate all year long. And what I like about it very much, it's a very, very lush uh, kind of uh, tropical habitat that comes with that kind of climate. And that clearly then impacts the design. So in terms of the heat of the space, I mean, I'm obviously talking from the UK where we kind of insulate, we have to insulate buildings and everything's glazed, everything's sealed. This is a very open building. It breathes, it's got a lot of natural ventilation. And if I'm right, a lot of some of the living spaces, there's there's no sort of barrier to the outside other than insect um netting what i want to ask is in terms of the location because these houses are there's prototype designs of you can get different sizes almost like a sort of flat pack design for for a house how specific are they to the location that no footprint house is located in um or you know how much is that climate influencing that design or are they designed that they could pretty much be kind of anywhere within uh, within costa rica or central america well, they could be anywhere, but they need modifications. And mm-hmm. I think that's a bit at the essence of your questions. Uh, you also used the name Lego before, which I like very much. I'm a kid who grew up with a lot of Lego. And um, what we did in the end was this kind of component modular system um, with certain spatial elements that we can configure in different kind of ways. So in order to help visualizing that to the client we pre-designed different typologies which we call the nfh 36 the 81 and the 108 which basically responds to the measurements in the structure grid size so the one that we built the nfh 108 is 12 by 9 meters and all the buildings are based on a 3 by 3 meter structure grid size mm-hmm. that is simply a very economic uh system size here in terms of the different materials that we use and also in terms of transportation so Mm -hmm. you could say that's a multiple of uh, measures that uh, come to terms in a lot of different contexts and then in terms of the applicability of these different buildings um as you say the one in ojochal in the south pacific is a very open kind of structure but we now have different clients we want to place one in Guanacaste, that's in the northwest of the country. That's a tropical coastal dry forest, very, very dry for most parts of the year. And uh, they also asked us to create cooled spaces, artificially cooled spaces within the bigger structure. So there we are now looking on one side into air conditioning, which is something that in general we like to avoid, obviously. But we believe that if you create compact kind of little spaces, 
then those you can still use to uh, keep the temperature cool artificially. And we're also looking into something, yeah, how would you call it in English? We call it Betonkantemperierung in German. One of these great German endless words. I don't know. I can't translate that. Sorry. <laughs> Where you basically run uh, cold water through concrete elements and they radiate right. their coolness to, to this space. And there we're looking yeah. into fully enclosed spaces. And uh, that is something that we're currently testing on. Right. Um, so maybe if we sort of start taking a tour of, of the house, and I think the tour's got to start from kind of walking towards it, because one of the beautiful things about this house is it's it's answering a lot of practical solutions, but it's it's like a piece of sculpture in itself, a freestanding um, pavilion. And what I like about it as well is it's it's very simple, but you look at it and think, but I haven't seen something that looks like this before. Um, and so it's effectively, it's a, rec- it's a rectangular box. Like you've said, it's, it's on a grid, these three meter square grids, um, a bit like a chessboard. It's kind of four, but a four by three chessboard, right? Right. Um, and the rectangle sits on these stilts in the, in the middle of the trees that's raised off, off the ground. But then what's really distinctive is it's all four sides slope outwards. So they're not vertical sides of this, this rectangle, all four sides slope outwards, so the the roof starts overhanging you. But then the roof also slopes the length of the building. Um, would you say that that kind of summarises, doesn't it? There's the sort of the the main external form of the project. Um, Absolutely. What's what's driving that? Why why do the walls slope and why does the roof slope? Yeah, great question. I mean, like what you typically have here in Costa Rica or in tropical architecture in general is that you have the vertical wall and then you have a roof over him, which here in Costa Rica we call the alero. Mm -hmm. And then what we did with the no footprint house is we basically slanted that wall to the edge of the alero because we say, well, all this space that is underneath that overhang, that is a very valuable space. And we build it anyways. So if we slant the wall outside, then we still have that protection against rain, against sun impact directly onto the lower floor plate, so to say that rectangular 12 by nine meter floor plate in the case of the 108. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we, we win this space as part of the interiors. If you see some of the photos or the video of the house, I think that also becomes very clear. You don't have this kind of like enclosure anymore of the vertical wall, uh, which in our case are also open walls because we use these kind of uh, louvers all around yes. the building. But the inclination outwards defines two conditions. On one hand side, it extends the interior space towards the edge of that alero in the upper parts of the building. Mm-hmm. You lose really this feeling of being enclosed because you don't have this verticality anymore. Mm-hmm. And then on the outside, it also creates a very interesting effect because you create a kind of very defined space that is underneath that alero and where you have this kind of like tilted wall coming in. And that also gives you a kind of like intimacy, I would say, because you can feel like you can cuddle up underneath the building where it cantilevers. Mm-hmm. You can kind of crawl into almost like a niche kind of condition uh, when you open the gates and you can sit on this floating floor. And I think that activates both the interior and the exterior spaces in a very nice way. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as you know, some of these facade elements can also be opened and uh, that creates a further fusion, I would say, between these interior and exterior spaces. And that is what tropical architecture, I mean, for me as an architect, uh, when I came here, 
um, I was very fascinated about these principles of tropical architecture that like through the climate, you really find this way of being inside, outside practically all year long. And then the question is, well, what, what's this kind of inner shell? What's this kind of cocoon that I really need to withdraw from nature? I mean, I grew up in Germany. Everything you just said about British English architecture, uh, the enclosure, mm-hmm. the importance of the envelope, all that is something that I could let loose over here because you didn't need it anymore in terms of climate division. You obviously need it in terms of shelter against wilderness and you need it in terms of defining a space. But this kind of playfulness between inside and outside, that is something I really got to love over here in the tropics. Mm-hmm. And in terms of from a privacy sense, I mean, this house is surrounded by trees on on all sides. It's quite a long drive, isn't it, that um, that leads up to the house. But it's quite a public building. If the trees weren't there, um, how do you think it would it would feel as a, as a house to have all those louvers open? Yeah, I mean, we all need privacy at some point, right? So what we have is a little bit like these onion rings, you could say. You have like the core. Uh, We did not yet speak about the core, but there's this inner service core of the building that contains all the services. And then you have docked to this core, the two sleeping rooms. And the two sleeping rooms have three different kinds of enclosures. One, they have glass sliders in order to create uh, privacy, but also acoustic division from the other areas of the building then you have a mobile mosquito um, slider in order to keep mosquitoes out when you open the glass sliders obviously and you have the curtain walls which in the case of our buildings our building is simply curtains so you have these three layers that you can interact with in order to create privacy yes and then above the middle beam you know there's this kind of middle beam that also holds the whole thing together structurally uh, above that, the whole building is open. There's only yes. mosquito netting as division in order to keep the airflows going and keep the mosquitoes out. So in extremely hot weather, forgive me because I'm not as familiar or that familiar with, with tropical architecture, but to keep in, in very hot weather or very humid weather, all these very high levels are just kept open for constant airflow and for, for cooling the space. Is that right? Right. And we also have mechanical ventilation in the case of the no footprint house. I don't know if you know that in some of the pictures, but they're also ceiling fans. Mm-hmm. And I said, in the case of very hot weather, what you just said, which we have in the case of Guanacaste in the northwest of uh, Costa Rica, there we also look into how we can condition these spaces further. And so... um just one of the things I was touching on before about the so I understand about the sloping the walls sloping outwards and I think that's really interesting about this these different feelings of how spaces not only from a practical point of view but how they can make you feel like if they're not vertical do you feel enclosed does it feel open and um, that is one of the joys of this building and the, the different sort of nature of the feeling of the space um, but what about the sloping of the roof is there is there a functionality to to the fact that the, the roof slopes entirely or is is it purely for for rainwater disposal? Well, the roof, obviously, I mean, here in the tropics, you also speak about, or here in Costa Rica, you speak about la cultura del techo, the culture of the roof. So that is something very, very important. I mean, the primary sense of shelter here is a roof, because as soon as you have a roof, you have protection against the elements. 
Mm-hmm. Walls are not that important. Once again, that's why we keep the North Footprint House relatively open. But it really is about the roof. So in the case of the prototype, it was also very important to, one, define a roof slope, which is 15 degrees. That responds to the materials that we use. Then there is an air, con- uh, how do you say, an air cushion uh, enclosed mm-hmm. to create further thermal uh, protection. And uh, we also harvest uh, solar energy via the roof. And we incorporated two skylights in order to illuminate uh, the inner areas of the core with natural daylight. So the roof is really multi-performance here. And it is, I would say, maybe the most single uh, important component of tropical architecture. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the case of the no footprint house, it's also no more like a rectangular roof. And that is maybe something interesting to say, because obviously it slopes into one direction. It's a mono-pitched roof. But then this, the facades, they all slope out with uh, 70 degrees, which is based on the income or, uh, incoming angle of the summer solstice. Mm-hmm. And um, that obviously creates a lot of different uh, connection points to the roof, which ultimately yes. results in a trapezoid shape. Right. And in, you mentioned about um, solar energy. Is that um, photovoltaics that you've got on no, what we do here, and that I think is actually an interesting discussion about sustainability that we could have, we only heat the hot water via the roof. That's a thermosolar system. Right. We also discussed uh, solar panels, but solar panels are not made in Costa Rica. So we said, well, why would we import solar panels from the US, Europe, or China? Obviously, right, that we would raise the footprint again, when the energy that we can get from the local grid is very sustainable. I don't know if you've heard, George, but in Costa Rica, throughout the last five years, the country produced all its energy almost entirely by renewables. It's no, always like balancing somewhere between 99 and 100%. Wow. Most of that being uh, hydroelectric energy. There's also a good portion of geothermal and uh, wind power. But we said, well, if the grid is so clean, so renewable, then of course we want to support that. Like we're not going to create our alternative logic and import panels from another country. We are going to use this grid as long as it's there. And in the case of the prototype mm-hmm. in Ojochal, the grid was within reaching distance. So we connect to that. Only if you heat um, hot water locally, then it's becoming very uh, inefficient in terms of energy use. So we said, well, the thermal heating of the water that we do locally via the roof. And those are also elements that are produced in Costa Rica. So we said, well, there's a system, let's use it. But for the rest, we plug the building into the grid because we have it and it's renewable. So that's a really interesting point then that you're saying about the the photovoltaic um, panels not produced in in Costa Rica. You'd be importing them from um, America if you were to use them. Um, How does that relate then to to everything else that's used um, in the project? Is, is, Is it mostly then locally sourced materials and fabrication? Well, that's a very good question because there we come down to one of the key challenges of the project. I mean, we tried something very unusual in a building context that I would say is very limited in terms of the materials that are available. It's unlimited mm-hmm. in terms of fantasy. There's great architecture over here. I've seen beautiful things. I was really surprised about the kind of quality of architecture when I came here. But let's say the building market, what they really offer, that is very, very limited. 
And a lot of it is imported. So I think that's very important to speak about this life cycle assessment that we did and this roadmap towards carbon neutrality, because we had at that time, we had to deal with what we have available, most of all. And that is something that now in the follow-up projects we are, we are questioning in all areas. And I think that is part of the beauty of the project and of the process of the project, because we saw that we can ultimately drive innovation in order to improve the performance of our project. And obviously that will also influence the industry at large because they will see what you can do if you take these factors into account that we did take into account. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example, like the structure of the prototype is steel. Steel had to be imported. We have shown with the life cycle assessment that overall we have a footprint in comparison to what we call the base case, the normal Costa Rican house of that size. We have a 60% footprint with the house that we did. So 40% we were able to save. And now one of the things that we did is we developed a structural component wood system together with a Swiss Costa Rican company. And there we basically develop a system that we can grow in Costa Rica. So it's a system that is based on laminated teak wood. All the components that we use for the different configurations that we designed, we can now make in wood. And with this improvement, we're going to be able to lower the footprint 60%. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a 40% footprint, which is a huge amount of savings. Yes. And then with further improvements that we have planned uh, for the upcoming models, we have projected a reduction of 80%. So result in a 20% footprint of the original base case in Costa Rica. And these last 20%, I mean, we will no longer be able to eliminate them. There's always going to be some environmental impact. So these 20%, we're simply going to compensate either through the production of energy locally or through the planting of trees in order to reach zero carbon Mm -hmm. footprint. I love it. I I, I just love how it's a developing project. That's the great thing about a prototype is that I think a thing that we often miss a lot in architecture is doing a project, moving on, doing the next one, not looking back, not evaluating. And it's particularly with houses, I find it's very hard to do unless you're a major developer and maybe you have sort of less incentive, but as an architect doing singular houses, it's, it's a lot harder to do. Um, and I think it's fun. It's, I could just, I mean, it's nice talking to you of just the energy of this, excitement i can tell you've got of waiting to do the next one and the next one's going to be better. Oh, yeah they're just going to keep getting better yeah um, well actually we are doing the 2.0 as we call it now uh yeah. we are just preparing the wood parts for the 2.0 and um that is a house on the one inside that we're going to build with the wood structure it's mm-hmm. going on site in december so i'm really really excited about that and that is also a house that was um much more reconfigured by the client in terms of applying the different components of our design system. Mm -hmm. And that I think is very, very interesting because he, in the end, made a 21 by 9 meter house out of that with a 21 by 3 meter terrace in front of it and a 21 by 3 meter pool, all orientated towards an amazing view also in the south of the Pacific coast. Mm -hmm. And like that was very interesting for us to, one, play with this new kind of structural system that we invented and on the other hand side, also really trigger the fantasy of the client so that they start playing with that Lego that we put into their hands. Yes, I, li- I like that term. Um, I think we're talking a lot about the sort of the process and the bigger picture and the carbon footprint. Um, but we also shouldn't forget 
that it's 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 a really nice space it's 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 beautiful architecture as well in terms of a home and maybe if we we kind of travel in now we talked about the outside and and this rectangle but maybe if we start by just revisiting what i mentioned before of it it's like being um a chessboard it's three squares by four squares as a rectangle um hopefully if anyone's uh listening to this part and hopefully somebody's going to start trying to sketch this out see if they can actually get the plan before looking at it but um the two central with a four by three grid you get two central squares that don't have any outside exposure they're not on the perimeter and that's where you've got the solid mass of the building i think you've referred to it somewhere as it's it's the core um and the kitchen units the the plant space and two um showers because it's a two-bedroom property this one um maybe could you talk a little bit about that first because it's kind of like a donut plan isn't it you've got the central core that's very closed and then all the living spaces are all around the perimeter by these beautiful um louvers maybe just what the thinking is first of all behind having this central core yeah um well the core has a variety of issues first of all i found it's a classic scheme also in modern architecture i mean Mies used the core in order to compress old services uh, that were then opposed to an open floor plan. Um, Buckminster Fuller made some houses that were uh, having this kind of service core within the dome in order to mm-hmm. find this kind of like uh, point of access for old services that was needed to inhabit the dome. And I think it's a reoccurring scheme. And for us, it was very interesting from that historic perspective, I would say. But then it was also very interesting in terms of logistics, because, I mean, you nicely pointed it out that like two central grids, so six by three meters, that is our service core in the case of the 108. So we also dimensioned that, again, like this three by three meter grid system that comes from a lot of different influences. So we dimensioned that, that we could transport up to the six by three meter core on one track. Because in Costa Rica, with uh, the width of the truck and then a certain dimension of oversize that they allow, mm-hmm. you can go up to three meter width. So for us, it became a very uh, economic way of compressing all the service into that core. And in the case of the 108, it means there are two bathrooms for the two different areas. There's the kitchen side, there's the washing machine, dryer kind of side, and there's one closet included in that core and we prefabricated that to the max put it on the truck as you also said before and then the truck had a crane and we were able to unload the crane directly onto the foundations when the building came to the site and then the core is also very very important uh on the one hand side in terms of services that's why we call it the service core so you can keep the lines very very short Mm-hmm. Let's say I already mentioned that we plug it into the li- local grid for energy and uh, water. We literally plug it into the grid. And of course, what we plug into is the core. And then from the core, you have very little service lines to the ceiling, basically, and to the motors on the outer facade. And that, in comparison to a standard construction, keeps the meters of cabling, the meters of piping very, very short. And then there's also another issue here in Costa Rica that we have uh, for construction, one of the highest seismic codes in the world. We're in the same codification like Japan, to give you an example or a reference. And uh, that is also very important for the core because the core is not only kind of the heart, the pulsating heart of the building, but it's also its structural core, its, its stability core. 
So you build the building all around that core by attaching all the components to the core and that creates its structural integrity. It's it's actually interesting. It's it's kind of like um it's like taking a plan out of a skyscraper of you know most skyscraper office open plan spaces are, it's a very familiar layout of the core of where the lifts are and where the toilets are and then all the office space around but it's it's in a domestic setting but obviously in an in an office tower open plan you kind of walk through the spaces um in a house it kind of presents some challenges like it would be quite tricky wouldn't it on this layout to have three bedrooms without having to go outside to get into one bedroom or walk through another bedroom. Did you find that um, a challenge? Because it's quite an interesting plan in the sense there's either two beds are in each corner of the the rectangle, but then they kind of have living spaces next to them and between them, as well as the the main kitchen, dining, living space. Um, did you find that sort of um, challenging in any way in terms of thinking how to use all of the, the donuts, so to speak? Well, definitely. Um, let's say the different configurations, this, the pre-designed configurations, the 36, the 81, and the 108, um, you have basically the tiny home, which is for individual or a couple, that's the 36, and then you have the 81 that has two bedrooms and a sandwiched terrace between them and an open kitchen dining. And the 108 as built has a one six by three meter bedroom attached to the core. So basically, that is a private access for the master bedroom to its own bath. And then the other bedroom sits kind of next to the core. There's an overlay, let's say, of one uh, grid size of three meters. But that generates a free access to that bathroom, which is kind of where you also come into the building. So there you have a toilet accessible right away. And that is obviously also the toilet you use from the social areas. And then between them is also kind of sandwiched little terrace. That is where we also put the washing machine and the dryer, these kind of like services of the building. And the kitchen uh, dining is accessible from both the living spaces. So you could say on the one side of the house, the building is more private. And the other side, it's more public, which is also, I think, the side that is mostly published in the different uh, articles, at least that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the... Uh, multiple rooms, what do you do when more than two entities need privacy, let's say, two couples or parents and children or whatever? That comes a little bit, uh, that surfaces a little bit into in this wood house that we now designed, um, this 21 by 9 meter house. There we basically have two sides of the building and we have what we call a dual core. So we have two smaller cores of 3 by 3 meter each. And in those cores, we include a stairwell a little mm -hmm. one that goes along a library. The people are publishers, so they like to read. They have a good collection of books. And we said, well, let's put these books on the inside of the course because they are the most protected from the climate. And through the course, you can access two mezzanines that are in the upper part of the building. So there actually we go into a two-story configuration, mm -hmm. which in the end creates four different private rooms. And those are allocated around a nine-by-nine-meter nine social area. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting for us to see how we can play with the legal or how the client also influences, uses that legal to cater it according to their needs. And they're a family of six. They're the parents, they're four children, and the children are in a certain age where they also study outside. But, you know, when uh, Christmas or whatever kind of festivity, they want to be here mm -hmm. together. So they came up with this idea of four different rooms, private rooms, social area plus this outer spaces that I described before. And I think that is very interesting to see 
how people also show us what we have to do, how we are confronted with configurations that we probably never expected in the first case. And then we have to see if the building system is really that resilient or flexible in order to cater these different needs. Yes. And I think if we're reflecting it back to going back to traditional architecture, the the traditional form for connecting rooms in a house is using the corridor. And obviously this is a corridorless design. There are no corridors. There's It's that seamless and continuous um, flow of space. Um, yeah. What do you think... Um, you t- you touched on it before, but maybe what you just describe a little bit of what you think it feels like to be in these spaces, like in the bedrooms. What do they feel like as as a space? Well, I mean, what is the objective? The objective is to be close to nature. Obviously, this is a rural house concept. It's a typology of a classic typology of a villa, you could say, a house in rural areas, and that means you have space around. Obviously, for urban configurations, which we're also looking at now, we're looking at a different kind of mm-hmm. way of using this design. But in the case of the prototype and in the case of where it is, you just have this amazing sensation of being outside, wherever you are within the building. And once again, like we, we I used the metaphor of the onion rings. Like it's, I really enjoy, I also slept there myself, I really enjoy to have this permanent contact with nature. And I mean, nature here is strong. Um, animals you hear, here right now we have the tropical storm, so it's raining like mad. And there's a creek here full with water. We hear that a lot at night because we're also living ourselves in a building that is based on these principles of bioclimatic architecture. Mm-hmm. And I really love this feeling of being, it's a bit like camping maybe. Uh, you know, like you're very close to nature. Once again, this is an urban, this is not an urban, this is a rural house concept. I think it's very, very beautiful to be able to live that close to nature. And that for me is the key component of, uh, being and staying in the house. So if we take the camping analogy, I mean, one of the beautiful things about camping is you feel close to nature because you can hear, um, nature when you're in these bedrooms there's they've got glass walls around they're the spaces that have the glass walls but are they open above where you've got the insect um mesh yeah yeah it's not that literal that they're all enclosed by glass walls uh let me try to explain the master bedroom so the master Mm -hmm. bedroom is six by three on uh, one side uh, it's plugged to the service core so three meters are connected to the bathroom in order to create a proper access there Mm-hmm. Then the other three meter of that size, they are connected to the terrace that is shared with the other bedroom. That mm-hmm. is enclosable by the glass sliders, the mosquito slider, and the curtain wall. Then towards the facade of the building, um, on the side of the bed, you only have mosquito netting in the facade, on the inclined uh, outer facade. So there you have direct connection right next to a bed, uh, right next to your bed with the outside. If it's getting a little bit drafty, um, once again, like it's a very mild climate here all year long. If it's getting drafty, you also have a kind of shade there or blind that you can pull in in order to create uh, wind protection, like a windbreaker, you could say. Mm-hmm. And then the back of the bed, you have what we call the facade plug for the back of the bed, because maybe I should mention that obviously the size of the core is limited but people may need more enclosed space in certain areas. 
So in order to compensate for that limitation of the core, we also created the facade plugs that you basically position between the vertical structural column line and the inclined outer facade. Mm -hmm. So that space at the bottom is 50 centimeter wide. And then at the top, due to the 70 degree slope of the facade, it's about a meter or 20, something like that. And you can use these spaces in many different ways. So one plug, for example, is what we call the back of the bed. So there you have the front wall open and you can rest your body against the uh, inclined outer facade. But then we have also modules that are closed on both sides and they, they can create additional uh, storage space. Uh, we have one model that has a foldable table to mm -hmm. use it as an office. We also design a furniture plug with a Murphy bed in case you get additional guests or in case you want to use one room only as office, but then have the temporary possibility of uh, receiving guests. So these facade plugs are very, very important. And in the master bedroom that I was just about to describe, there are two facade plugs in the back of the side. So to two sides of this room, the building is enclosed up to the middle beam. And above yeah. the middle beam, as you said yourself, it's uh, enclosed with mosquito netting all around. But you know, like through these like different elements, the different kind of enclosures, the glass sliders, the mosquito, mm. the curtain wall, plus the diversity of the facade plugs, you actually create a huge kind of like toolbox of opportunities and a lot of options to create variety within the building configuration. Mm -hmm. And that was for us very, very important when we said, let's go for an industrialized scheme. Obviously, most of the prefabricated buildings are replicated identically and create monotony if you put 10 next to each other. So we said, let's really also create these soft factors or however you want to call it so people can individualize the design and that we can see that really one building is not identical to the other, but there is a great sense of variety. And um, and yeah, it's, you're not living in a glass box essentially, are you? Because there is a mixture of solid and void. There's yeah. that sense of coziness and prospect and refuge um and uh, uh, one thing we haven't um really fully sort of touched on yet is are the the sloped sides where you've got the louvers that that open and close um they actually lift up kind of like folding out shutters don't they so they kind of concertina upwards and if you opened all of them you could the whole living space would just be like an open platform onto the onto the landscape and i love how that's a real key part of the design that they're, they're mechanized aren't they with with counterweights so you can actually see how the whole thing um is working i mean how would you describe them i mean they're a little bit like a very clever garage doors something like that in terms of the um in terms of the weights but you could probably describe them a lot better than than that's probably not doing them justice saying garage doors yeah, I like the analogy of garage doors, because actually that's how we also started to call them. Portones, we say over here, which is the Spanish mm -hmm. name for garage door. Um, but I mean, essentially, they're foldable facade elements, bifold doors. They're called technically, I think you know this mechanism a lot. It's typically used in airport hangars for bigger mm -hmm. planes, uh, bigger agricultural kind of structures there. This is a quite common system. But our issue was to say, well, if we use that in this context of the no footprint house, then we got to see, you know, we looked at different opening systems and we said, let's really try to create this open horizon. Because if we have something that we move to the side, sliding doors, there's always a certain portion closed. If we have uh, vertical foldable doors, then um, you always see this kind of limitation of the folding doors being parked to the side. 
And uh, so these bifold gates became the kind of ideal uh, solution because on the one hand side, you can fully open up the facade. And at the same time, you reproduce this alleo, this overhang that I was describing yes. before. You, so you create your own sun shading at the same time. And obviously, by going, by breaking that boundary, opening the facade, it is beautiful to sit there on the edge of the floor plate, which is elevated, and dangle your feet over the edge and then being protected against the sun again by the overhang that is temporarily created by the upfolded bifold doors. Mm -hmm. And like this, that became really a kind of very, uh, uh, how do you say, like... Um, agile element that creates a lot of fulfills a lot of different functions mm -hmm. and it is not all around the building because as i said before like there's also facade plugs in some areas of the building and it is also cost factor obviously yes. the folding gate costs more than a fixed piece of facade panel so in the end with the client you know there was a top uh, of price a top of cost that they didn't want to overpass and of course, we were very respectful to that. And within that budget, in the end, we came up that we can actually use seven facade gates in the 14 three-meter facade areas that you have. So half of it is operable. The other half is either fixed louvre elements or facade plugs. And that creates also this kind of play that you have uh, within the overall appearance of the building. And I was just thinking, this this house doesn't have a front door, does it? Well, it does, but it's a gate. It, but it's one of the gates, right? It's one of those. So it's very James Bondish, and actually, like one of the main things that the client likes, I think, is to have this little remote, and like when they come with the car, they love to like push the button so that the <laughs> gate opens up while they drive in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you've stayed in the house. Um, I'd like to ask you two things, really, with that. One is. From staying in the house, what's what surprised you? What sort of made you think, oh, wow, this is this is really cool. I didn't expect this. And also, second thing, because of how you've sort of been talking in the interview, and, you know, this is a clearly a very forward-moving project. There's going to be more prototypes. There must have been something when you stayed in this that you kind of thought, we can do this better next time. We, this is the thing we need to work on. Yeah. I mean, I see that all the time. It's haunting me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, like, I think what we do here, I mean, building in the tropics is very attractive in terms of this issue of the inside outside, but the climate can be brutal. So you really need to make sure that you use durable materials, uh, hence also the development of the teak structure. And we want to simplify also a lot of these facade gates because I don't know if you can imagine, but of course we talk to suppliers and, you know, I, I like to figure things out. Uh, I did a lot of R&D also in the offices where I worked before starting A01. Research, so, and, I mean, research yeah. and development for anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, like figuring out these gates was a huge challenge because obviously we went to providers. We wanted to find somebody who just puts them in for us. And no big headache for us. And everybody said, yeah, no, it's a great idea. As long as you make it vertical, no problem. And we're like, yeah, no, but it can't be vertical because then we have a normal house and we don't want a normal house. So they were like, oh, okay, well, but then you can't have that gate. Uh, so we were like, oh, okay, what are we going to do? And um, then we really tested a lot of different possibilities for these gates to be motorized, only based on gravity, 
Um, as said, this first uh, building is built with a steel structure, and that creates quite some weight on this three by uh, two meter fifty high gate. So in the end, we needed a motor to bring it up, and we have to counterweight to pull it in on these last centimeters. Maybe you can imagine, like if you would just like close mm -hmm. it by gravity, it would still have that valley in the last yes. twenty centimeters or something like that. So it wouldn't have that crisp shape when you close all the gates, which of course is part of the beauty of the building. So there we worked with the counterweights, and now we have figured out a way how to can also how we can also run these manually only by gravity. So that was really a big, big issue for us to kick out these motors. Because you know, I mean seven gates, seven motors, more cabling, etc. Yeah. All this needs maintenance in the tropics, and uh, that for us was like a big thing to improve. And I think that's the single most, uh, that, that's, that's the building element that we spent the most of time on. Yes. And that, and, and so, you know, if you, you're staying in the building, that was a thing that maybe was sort of drawing your attention and wanting to improve. What about the thing that, uh, an element that surprised you about what it was like to live and stay in, in this house? I guess this. Cercania, as we call it, the closeness to nature. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it was the idea. That's, in a way, also like how we started designing it. But then, to on the one hand side, like feel like you're in a house, but to through these different layers, it's literally like these layers of clothing that you can take on off when you want to stay warm or cold. Like through manipulating these different layers in terms of privacy, acoustic exposure, uh, feeling enclosed or feeling outside. That is something mm -hmm. that was really, really beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. um, and Oliver, you um, you used to you mentioned at the beginning you used to work for um, OMA, um, led by one probably one of the most famous architects in the world, Rem Coolhouse. Um, I just wondered what what you maybe learnt from from working with him, if there's if, in, anything that you've sort of seen in what you've applied on this project that might have been an influence from working there. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there are multiple relationships here that we're talking about i mean on the one hand side i, I was working at oma from 98 till 2004 so there was a very very interesting period because on the one hand side it was a period of growth for the office we were like mm -hmm. 25 when i came in and there were about 250 people distributed over different offices when i left so it was an enormous period of growth and within that period, there were, for me, two key moments. One was, well, the, the office won the Pritzker Prize in 2000. That obviously brought a lot of more attention even to the office. And there was also a split of OMA and AMO. So, you know, you have OMA, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, as a design service firm. And Rem, he was always saying or emphasizing how much research we did for every project. And he was always like obsessed about this idea of also bringing that to the client as a service that the office can provide. And in order to do that, he basically separated AMO as a think tank from OMA. And that became very important in like the first projects we did with AMO. One, there was like the Prada flagship stores going up at that time. Uh, we did a lot of research also, again, R&D through AMO, also think about the media representation of Prada as a brand. And uh, later on, um, after my time, but we stayed in contact about that, AMO also did the roadmap towards a prosperous, low-carbon future within the European yes. Union. So that became a very important 
contact point for us again, where we said, well, if it's possible to lower significantly the carbon emissions within the EU, like it must be easy for a country like Costa Rica to become carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. So we co-drafted this roadmap towards carbon neutrality in Costa Rica. And it was always this kind of like working between the design practice and thinking architecture in, or urban urbanity development in a broadest sense. So obviously, when I started A01 together with Maraya, then we also had a lot of this duality in our thinking, but we channeled it more in terms of it being oriented at a developing country or world background. So we said, well, we on the one hand side, we want to work as a commercial entity, but on the other hand side, we also want to be able to perform nonprofit projects mm-hmm. and drive themes that don't have an economy yet. So I would say this analogy of OMA and OMA and AMO, I also see a lot in our setup in terms of yeah. the company foundation, but it being much more oriented at a developing kind of context. That's interesting. Um, Oliver, I'm, I'm now going to ask you um, the three questions that I ask um, all my guests. Um, and one of them um, is about the place that you're talking to me from from now. Um, it's your home. And just what is the one thing that really annoys you in your own home? In my home here? Um, that is a good question. Um, I mean, I guess I'm always struggling a little bit with this upbringing in Germany. I guess I'm very German in many ways, uh, good and bad ways. And having moved to a more informal culture means that you need to improvise permanently. And that I also find in construction. And that I also see in my own home. So anything that we do, I always see the bugs, I always see the faults. (laughs) And I guess I'm kind of like struggling between this German identity that I have and this more tropicalized and mellow identity that I have by now after living 15 years in Costa Rica. <laughs> and what, so how does that translate specifically then into something in your home that you kind of live with every day? Well, I always see details that we just improved, but they were not done well. There's a mistake. <laughs> it needs to be done all over again. You really need to do, have a lot of patience here to do something well. Yeah. Um, and then if you could describe, um, one home that you've um, visited or that you've stayed in or that you've lived in, that's really inspired you and why? Um, well, there are several, but let's say in terms of my own work time and the places where I've stayed, I was always very fascinated about the Maison Bordeaux, the, o, the OMA's Bordeaux house the one that has an elevator in the center going up and down, because that for me was really a lot about this perception of the house as a machine. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, we designed it for a person who was uh, handicapped. Uh, He was in a wheelchair. So the elevator gave him this kind of freedom of moving through the house vertically, the elevator room. And I was always very fascinated. I mean, I came into the project when it was already under construction and we had to resolve these kind of details of how the platform touches different levels. Uh, It drives along a library. Also in that case, the client was a publisher and we had to create, you know, these, uh, how do you call that? Like these laser controls. If a book sticks out that it doesn't break one of the glass shelves that we had developed together with a Belgian 
furniture designer. So I really became a bit obsessed about this idea of the house as a machine. Mm -hmm. A bit like Jacques Tati almost. Like, you know, the Jacques Tati films where you have like this good side of the house being there to serve you, but also people go crazy with all the bugs and maintenance issues that mm -hmm. brings with them. But that for me was definitely the most important house in my work career. And I see a lot of it also in the No Footprint House or other things that we do. That's really interesting. I, I, I think I remember reading a really good book about that house that written by the structural engineer because it was a very close... Cecil, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Cecil, Cecil yeah. Balmont, right? Yeah, exactly. From yeah, no, yeah, he was key in that collaboration. I yeah. mean, anyway, he was key in that collaboration, but that is a key feature of OMA's work. I mean, I also remember Rem saying we spent so much of the budget, we just moved that over to other people: acoustics, structural, mechanical engineering, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one of his obsessions was also to make sure, as much as possible, that we as architects can control all these budgets and make them agents of the design. Uh, one of the first projects I worked with uh, from scratch in OMA was the Dutch embassy in Berlin. I don't know if you know the building, but you basically yeah, we, walked. Yeah, we visited it when um, it was a university trip. We, we all went round. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many years ago that would be now, probably about 15 years ago. But Yeah. I mean, like on one side, there's the urban components. I'm not going to explain too much about it, but there's also this continuation of the urban space within the building, which is called the trajectory. And the trajectory is basically like the main duct of the building. So you walk through the duct while going up the building. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very interesting way in all projects of OMA to see how, you know, the structural informs the design, the mechanic informs the design. Actually, the embassy was the building where I first worked worked with this great uh concept of the beton can temporium to yeah. have like all this concrete mass to be the kind of heating or yes. cooling agent of the building and i think that is something i really picked up and especially in oma i was doing a lot of r d and obviously with the kind of scale growth that i described before that was a really really interesting way also of exploring these concepts at different scales mm -hmm. and that is something i adored about being at oma this kind of like really examining of like trying to make everything an agent of the architectural concept mm -hmm. and then also seeing how that architecture responds to its environment mm -hmm. and uh that i think is something one of the key lessons that i learned over there okay the tough question now um if you could choose any designer to design you a home, who would you choose? Yeah, that's a nice one. Well, I mean, through this interdisciplinary way that we work here at A01, I really enjoy that there's a lot of different perspectives on the things that we do. So I think I would not like an architect to be the designer of my dream house or whatever you would call that. Mm -hmm. But I would f try to find somebody outside of that domain. And I've met a lot of people who work a lot also in rural areas, again, on, on projects that sometimes need a push to our foundation or other entities. And I've seen amazing buildings being done over there by people who simply got some kind of experience over the years by building. And there's a tribe called the Bribri who live in the south, southeast towards the Caribbean of the country. And I've seen some crazy structures that they build, all with natural materials, uh, no metal connectors. Uh, they're really pushing the boundary of sustainable architecture. And I think it would be one of them that I would choose to design that house that you described. Excellent. 
Um, well, Oliver, thank you very much. Uh, I've I've found that fascinating, and I'm sure listeners will do too. Um, and I hope you I hope you enjoyed it. But thank you very much for joining me today. Very much. It was a great conversation, George. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about A01, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com, where you will find links to their work and interesting articles. And try out the podcast Instagram to see work of all my guests and sneak previews of upcoming guests. If you enjoyed the episode, then please tell your friends, and if you can, give me a review on iTunes or whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thank you again for listening. Thank you.